0: Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday School class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Season 3 of Jericho Road. Uh, We've been looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, but for these two episodes, We're going to step back from Mark's gospel and over to a story that's only told in the gospel of Luke. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. I like to use it because I think it's one of the best parables that we can use as an example of parables, Jesus using everyday things to point us to God or point us to the kingdom of God or point us how we act in the kingdom of God. It's also the origin of this podcast name. Jericho Road is where we get this thing. I also like it because it's an important story. It's important because it's the first story that Jesus tells in Luke's gospel after he makes a decision to to travel to Jerusalem for his own eventual crucifixion, a painful death, betrayal, before rising again on Easter. So, hey, the Good Samaritan is an important story. It's also a little different than the story we've probably all grown up with, which is to say that the Good Samaritan becomes synonymous with a do-gooding, charitable person. It's actually much more layered than that. Uh, What we did in the first episode was look at the danger that Jesus would have been in talking to the lawyer who's asking him a question to test him, um, who is my neighbor. Now we're going to look at the parable itself. So just as a recap, I want to read the parable to you, remembering that sometimes we can know a story so well, we don't know it at all. It goes like this. This is beginning with the 29th verse of the 10th chapter of Luke. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, and having poured oil and wine on them, and then he put them on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Well, Jericho Road is not only a name for this podcast, it's also a highway you can travel down today. Going from Jerusalem, you go downhill, about 18 miles from Jerusalem, east of Jericho, From about 2,500 feet above sea level to more than 1,000 feet below sea level, it's an ear-popping and dramatic descent, really, really hot and dry down there. People living in the world of Jesus knew this road. It was a common pilgrim road from the Jordan River Valley. Jesus living in the Galilee would have traveled down the Jordan River Valley to the lowest place on planet Earth, hang a right at Jericho, and climb the hill to Jerusalem. But it was also known from the Bible, this Jericho Road. Uh, David fled from his rebellious son Absalom there. King Zedekiah was captured by the Babylonians there. That's found in 2 Kings chapter 25. And like all ancient roads, these were dangerous for travelers. They knew this too. So we're told in verse 29, and he fell into the hands of robbers. That's a specific word. It means lawless bandits, and this is key. I like to tell my congregation, you need to treat yourself from time to time and read any gospel story from front to back because even in the English translation, you can begin to connect dots. And this word robber is an important dot to connect because it's going to appear at another place. I'll recap the story and I'll show you where. It's the last week of Jesus' life. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt, we're told. A colt that's never been ridden, which means no saddle, which means it's hard to do. The, the Mount of Olives from where Jesus was coming is a really, really steep grade. And when I take pilgrims there, we get out of a bus and we have our picture made at this dramatic overlook that sort of has the famous view of the Dome of the Rock in the background. And then we walk downhill to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's really, really hard not to fall unless you're wearing the right kind of shoes. So I can only imagine how hard it would be to ride an animal, but he did it anyway because he wanted to make a political statement. It's fascinating to me that Jesus spends so much time telling people, don't say who I am or don't, don't tell anyone the miracle that I'm doing for you because he doesn't want his identity to be misused. And in a previous episode, we called that the messianic secret. We talked about it, but here he's in full view as a royal figure. Specifically, a fulfillment of something that Zechariah dreamed of in Zechariah chapter 9, a Messiah to enter Jerusalem, and maybe even something else. I got lucky this last summer, lucky for me, uh, not for the people living in the in Israel in the pilgrim industry with the borders closed, but I got lucky, and I was able to go over there for a couple of weeks, which means that I had Jerusalem all to myself, and I had Edan, my friend, all to myself, and I had all sorts of archaeologists all to myself because they had the time to give me because they're not they're busy with their other work interrupted and I was able to see something marvelous at at a dig called the City of David it's the original city of Jerusalem with the davidic palace at the top there. Uh, all, the, all the kings of Judah would live in this palace at the top of the hill, and going down the hill to a water source called the Gihon Spring, which was famously enclosed by a wall at the time of King Hezekiah so that the Assyrians uh, couldn't besiege them and kill them. Down by the Gihon, a very important story happens in 1 in Kings. Now, because of this story and because of this chamber that they found and because of the ornamental nature of this chamber, archaeologists believe that they have found the anteroom to the coronation of King Solomon. It is a remarkable find, and I was able to stand there and imagine what it would have been like to have uh, Zadok the priest, the high priest, uh, vesting and Nathan the prophet and all those in attendance uh, for the coronation of the future king of the land. You can see it today. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 32, we have an important detail. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32, goes like this. King David said, summon to me the priest Sadduk. The reason why he's having to summon everybody is because there is a struggle for succession. One of his sons named Adonijah is claiming to be the king. So David, literally from his deathbed, has to have a hurry-up coronation to make sure that his son becomes the next king. Summon to me the priest Sadduk, he says, the prophet Nathan and Beniah, son of Jehoiada. And when they came before the king, the king said to them, Take with you the servants of the Lord and have my own son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to the Gihon. A colt, a mule, an animal without a saddle. This is a royal ride. Even as if it may be hard to go down in the Kidron Valley, the crowds are excited and they're throwing leafy things down on the ground and they're shouting hallelujah to the king. Jesus is revealing himself to be Lord They were probably also imagining something that had happened 150 years before in the city of Jerusalem as Judah Maccabee, a a warrior leader up from their own ranks, a priestly leader, uh, would go and defeat God's enemies and bless and restore the temple in Jerusalem. Maybe Jesus would cleanse the temple uh, just as he did before, but instead Jesus did something else. We know the story, right? It's Luke chapter 19, beginning with the 45th verse. Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Made it a den of robbers. You've made my temple the den of the same word, lawless bandits who would hurt someone and leave them dead on the road. The sorriest kind of criminal that there could be. You've made my, my, my temple, my home, a den of this, which means that Jesus didn't enter the temple to purify the temple. He entered the temple to attack the temple for that very reason. Which brings us back now to our parable and our lesson, who is my neighbor? Okay, fact. A man is left for dead on the Jericho road, and also he might be dead on a dangerous road for you to stop. Fact. If you touch a dead person in the world of Jesus, you could be defiled. Fact priests and Levites had differing levels of participation allowed with dead bodies, including that of funerals, but Samaritans did too. So this becomes an exercise in ethics. And first, we need to clear up a misperception. The priests and Levites are commonly let off the hook. They were in my Sunday school days. We figured they were avoiding the man so that they could perform temple service and not be defiled. But if you read the parable carefully they were going down the Jericho Road, which means they were going away from Jerusalem and had no reason not to stop. Besides, with Leviticus 21 in the background and all the Torah, in fact, we're told that within Judaism, and all of its rules, they still should have stopped and checked on the guy and called for help. The point here is the first two men were afraid, but not the Samaritan. Samaritans. Okay, I think in order to dig into the story just a little more, we need to live in the world of the Samaritans for just a minute. And that's something else I got to do this summer, which was a great thrill. I got to meet the brother of the high priest of all the Samaritans. Uh, he He had two biblical names, Levi, which means priest, and Cohen, which means priest. And so I got to sit around and jaw with Levi Cohen, one day, uh, who is the brother to the high priest of all the Samaritans, which sounds like a whole lot, but actually there are only 800 Samaritans left in the world, and many of them living on Mount Gerizim, where where my pal Levi Cohen uh, lives today. So let's recap the story about the Samaritans. Let me show you where they come from. After King Solomon, we just saw the chamber where he was consecrated, after King Solomon, there were two kingdoms. Uh, they split. Uh, The the tensions between the two were unbearable, and under Solomon's son Rehoboam, you ended up with with the kingdom of Israel in the north with King Jeroboam, and that's 10 tribes, and then Judah in the south, which is two tribes. But Judah would remain more stable because they had the capital city of Jerusalem. Israel never had that stability. But the north was bigger, it was more powerful, and it was more— tempting uh, by Assyria to overrun it. And so in 722 BC, it was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. uh, And the Samaritans claim to be those remaining Israelites after that initial destruction. The Samaritans keep a modified five books of Moses, so they keep the Torah, but they've rejected the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, that's their story. The Hebrew Bible says something otherwise. Uh, in, in 2 Kings chapter 17, I'll paraphrase this, uh, what we're told is that after the Assyrian uh, devastation of Israel in the north, the Assyrians would repopulate uh, these devastated places with people from what is now Iraq and Syria and in Babylon. Uh, they would repopulate different sorts of people and mix them all up and then would teach them the worship of the local gods and that's exactly what they intended to do. This Mesopotamian idea was to displace people and to mix them all up so that you would have one Mesopotamian culture. So that really, according to our Bible, is the origin story of the Samaritans, which is why they reject the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. But they are a mixed up people of displaced nations, which was exactly the strategy. Except the Hebrews living in Judah remained apart. See, in 586, so that this just 150 years later, the Babylonian captivity would attempt the same thing. That's a Mesopotamian idea, but they stayed apart, and God's people wrote the Bible, wondering if they would ever go home again. They lost their temple, but they gained the scriptures that they had spoken orally or had scraps of scrolls for a thousand years. Now they wrote it all down and codified it, and God called prophets like Ezekiel, to speak comfort to them way out there, and then after seventy years, they got to go home thanks to the the political fortunes under the Persian King Cyrus. They never dreamed it would happen, but now uh, they were able to go home and rebuild. Then came a missed opportunity with regards to Samaritan and Hebrew relations. So we read this in Ezra chapter four, and the book of Ezra is a book about that rebuilding time. Their home, their home from. Uh, exile, and now they've got the, they've got a city uh, to, to recreate, if you will, and a temple to rebuild. And Ezra chapter four is about an overture from these people living in Samaria. I'll read it to you. It's Ezra four verses one through three. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. We've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of King Eskerhiden of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families in Israel said to them, You shall have no part with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. Well, the rest is history. There would be no cooperation between those two. And so in time, the Samaritans would build their own temple on Mount Gerizim, or as my friend E. Don puts it, a copy paste of the temple in Jerusalem. And to this day, they still have animal sacrifices at the Passover, which sounds kind of nasty and I don't want to see it. But there it is, Mount Gerizim with a temple on top and 800 Samaritans uh, traveling up there for the the worship. To worship in many ways that you could still see today would be worship at the time of Jesus. They're almost a capsule, if you will, of biblically worshiping people. But for our purposes, for our purposes, now we're beginning to understand the drama of a book like John chapter 4. John chapter 4, which is Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman at the well. Maybe this story gets right by us, but now that we know the the distance between Samaritans and people living in Judea, or the prickly nature of the history between the two people, or how about just the downright hatred between the two, uh, each claiming to have the original authentic temple on their own, you can see that it's almost an impossible impasse. And yet, in John chapter 4, we're told that Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman at the well. Specifically, I'm going to read verses uh, 9 and 10. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, How is it that you, a Jew, drink? ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay, Jesus is busting categories all over the place here. First of all, he speaks to a woman at noon, which he's not supposed to. She's drawing water at noon, which means she's got a checkered past. She doesn't have anybody to help her, and she's got to go to the well by herself in the hottest part of the day when nobody goes out there. Uh, He also uh, asks asks a drink, which you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to talk to these people. They're the enemy. And then he offers living water. And living water— is the priestly designation for the water at the harvest festival in Jerusalem at Sukkot in the fall, which means that worship in Jerusalem is busting out all over the place in the person of Jesus, that it's not merely located in one particular place, in one particular time, but with all people with hearts to receive it, living water. Jesus is bridging serious divides here. So we're told in his parable, that the Samaritan ends up being the good guy, brave, kind, generous. But the challenge remains, he's supposed to be the enemy. He's not supposed to be the person in this story. He's not supposed to be the one that they want to be the hero. He's not supposed to be the one who's supposed to be good. To say the parable of the good Samaritan is like saying the parable of the good enemy. It doesn't make sense. Or maybe it does. See, people living in the world of Jesus had another story in the background, in the backgrounds of their imaginations. It's from Second Chronicles 28, and it goes back to that low point, that divided kingdom, the, the, the hostility between those living in Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And we're told in 2 Chronicles, this part of the Bible, chapter 28, that, that Israel makes war on Judah. And God allows it to happen because the people of Judah have been idolatrous and have strayed, and so it, that part sort of their fault that this even allowed to happen. But the king of Israel makes war, and remembering that that Old Testament numbers are often symbolic or inflated, we're told that one hundred and twenty thousand Judean men are killed in a day. And then, what adding to the spoils of war they take 200,000 women and children and then and then all the all the booty all the all the riches of Judea that they could they could put on the back of a horse and they take their take them all to Samaria in order to enslave the women and children there and this has to be heartbreaking for God who's watching uh these cousins fighting each other this dream that he had for a people apart this dream that he had for a holy nation at war with itself and now they're doing to each other what the nations of the earth always do to each other, which was never God's dream. And so out comes a prophet, Oded, to call them out. Now, I wouldn't call Oded one of my A-list prophets, but he sure saves the day here. He calls them out and he reminds them that if they do this sort of thing, it will displease God even more greater than what had happened to the men of Judah. And so in Second Chronicles chapter 28, beginning with the 14th verse, verses 14 and 15, listen to the details. This is how they respond so the warriors left the captives and the booty before the officials and all the assembly then those who were mentioned by name got up and took the captives and with the booty they clothed all that were naked among them they clothed them gave them sandals provided them with food and drink and anointed them and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys they brought them to the kindred at jericho the city of palm trees then they returned to samaria did you catch the details same location same mercy same hatred No, God is revealed by not how we are divided or who we are, but how we treat each other. Who is my neighbor? Everyone, even a Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Everyone, even the person we fear. Who is my neighbor? Everyone, even the person I've been taught to despise. Who is my neighbor? Everyone, even the person I don't understand. Who is my neighbor? Every child of the living God. And how can we love each other? It's quite a story, and it's more than about charity. It's got a lot of history behind it, and I hope that we've got you thinking of the parable of the Good Samaritan in a new way. Join us in the next episode where we talk about Jesus and outcasts. Thanks, everybody.